there's a, a, a real danger in what Mark Latham's going to talk about because he's involved in, in an exercise of speaking truth to power about the kind of fundamental structures of the way our politics are operated. And he does it with an inside knowledge and also the benefit of the outsider who can be genuinely critical. Mark Latham is an Australian writer, an essayist, a former politician. As you know, he was the leader of the Australian Labor Party and leader of the opposition from 2003 until 2005. He's the author of Not Dead Yet, Labor's post-left future, and what's actually been published now, The Political Bubble, Why Australians Don't Trust Politics. We'll have plenty of time for question and conversation, but in the first instance, please join with me in welcoming Mark Latham. Well, thanks very much, Simon, and uh, thank you for the audience participation, uh, those of you who've come along today. Um, one of the challenges of a post-parliamentary life is to find new ways of contributing to public good and public information. I've tried to do this by writing with what seems like a thousand newspaper columns, and now my ninth book, The Political Bubble, Why Australians Don't Trust Politics. Uh, in writing the book, I thought it was timely for someone with experience in party politics to look at the decline in democratic legitimacy, the way in which most Australians have lost faith and confidence in organised politics. MPs and even ex-MPs like myself are seen as a breed apart, an alien group engaged in strange self-serving activities, well removed from a normal life and normal people. That's certainly the media image and in large part the broader public perception. Uh, so at the start of my talk, I'd like to give you two anecdotes, two nuggets of personal experience with this process. Uh, the first uh, was in aisle seven of Campbelltown Woolworths supermarket in 2005, about six months after I retired from the House of Representatives. And I was there just uh, shopping away, as you do, in aisle seven, um, getting some food to later on cook the family meal in my new responsibility as the uh, primary carer of my children in the house and uh, as my wife uh, pursued her legal career. So I'm shopping away and a fellow walked up and said, uh, what are you doing here? And he was bordering on aggressive about it. He said, what are you doing here? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing here? I'm just shopping like everyone else. He said, nah, come on, you've got a butler who does all this for you. <laughs> I said, mate, I am the butler. These days, I am the butler. And anyway, I live in Campbelltown, not Buckingham Palace, so what are you going on about? So he just scratched his head and wandered off, not believing for a moment that I was doing the shopping and later on the cooking in my household. And the second story as to how uh, parliamentarians, ex-MPs are perceived in the community, maybe this is unique to myself, but um, on the uh, eve of the 2011 Melbourne Cup, I'd been invited through a friend of a friend to attend the big dinner, uh, black tie dinner they had at the Australia Club in Melbourne. Uh, for those who don't know, the Australia Club's one of those exclusive, I think, all-male misogynist institutions <laughs> that we have in Australia, to use the, the modern lingo. And uh, I was seated on one of the central tables in their auditorium, and I was going to be joined uh, on the table by Rod Kemp, who'd been the um, sports minister in the Howard government. And Rod came in, and as he was entering the auditorium, he was buttonholed by one of his mates, who said to him, um, hey Rod, see that bloke sitting over there on that table, don't you reckon he looks like Mark Latham? <laughs> and Rod, who sort of got dry, laconic style, um, said to his friend, well, actually, it might be Mark Latham. And the bloke said, no, he wouldn't want to come to a place like this. And even if he did, we wouldn't let him in. <laughs> so my first thank you today is to the organisers of the conference and the Opera House for letting me in. It's always the threshold test for where I can appear in public and the things I can talk about. Uh, in the substance of my dangerous idea or dangerous reflections, I wanted to talk about the way in which distrust of the political system has become a huge issue, a huge problem. Uh, my memory goes back to when I got interested in public life uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, joining the local Labor Party branch in Green Valley out there in the western suburbs. And at that time, of course, to be the local member of parliament was an honoured vocation, very much an honoured role in the community where it was very much about public service. 
And in the years since, of course, this uh, reputation has totally de deteriorated to the point where now the local MP is someone seen with suspicion, uh, allegations of self-serving behaviour, all the processes of corruption in New South Wales, broken promises. Uh, we've been through 20 or 30 years where distrust in politics has risen exponentially. Uh, just in June of this year, the Lowy Institute, in a fascinating study uh, of public opinion, reported that only 42% of Australians aged between 18 and 29 see, and I quote, democracy is preferable to any other kind of government. So a minority of young Australians actually regard what we call parliamentary democracy as the preferred system of government. I'm not too sure they asked the question of, well, what do you prefer if not democracy? There would have been a range of answers. Perhaps it relates to another session being held right now concerning Vladimir Putin. Maybe that's the way of the future as young Australians see it, or they had other ideas in mind. But the bottom line was there was a high level of distrust dismissing democracy as a preferred institution for the governance of the country. And every week we see the problems. Um, it's apparent that the public has good reason for this rise in distrust and declining confidence in organised politics. Uh, the ICAC here in New South Wales just this week resulted in the ninth Liberal Party MP standing down from his own party. Uh, we're seeing more evidence of the incredible process by which the Liberals in 2011, in quite rightly campaigning against Labor Party corruption, Eddie O'Bead and all that gang, they themselves were corrupting the system of election funding, collecting donations from private developers when that was outlawed under the statutes of New South Wales. An incredible situation where publicly they could be cam campaigning against uh, government corruption, but privately organising it themselves in the way in which they were funding their campaigns seat by seat. Also uh, this week in the news, the Prime Minister's amazing confession that he rorted his travel entitlements on Monday night to uh, attend a, a Liberal Party fundraising dinner in Melbourne, to have public subsidisation of that uh, dinner and the fundraising and he tagged on the next morning a visit to a cancer institute so he could collect the uh, uh, travel entitlement, the hospitality allowance and allow the public funding of what effectively is a private jet to get him to and from Melbourne. It wouldn't be too often in the history of any political system that the uh, head of government confesses to a rorting of entitlements. This is after uh, the same Prime Minister uh, last year had to repay funding for attending weddings and the like um, earlier in his parliamentary career. So when the public sees this stuff, of course, it erodes confidence in the ethical base of modern politics. In launching Paul Kelly's book last week, Tony Abbott said that in the breakdown of governance and the loss of trust, uh, it's the people in the system who've been the problem, not the system itself. He sees uh, individuals as the problem rather than structural concerns about what's happened to modern government and modern politics. Uh, well, I think there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. It's not so much the individuals in the system. There have been four big structural changes in our society that have impacted adversely on the way in which democracy functions. And now, in many cases, good people are being caught in a bad environment. I think if you try to identify what's wrong with the behaviour that, that I'm talking about, it's not so much that the people are bad when they enter politics, it's more that good people are being caught in a bad environment, a bad structural situation. Uh, so I'd identify four big structural changes. The first of those is rising prosperity. Uh, Australia over the past 20 or 30 years has become a wealthier nation. We've enjoyed 23 years of unbroken economic growth, uh, a better educated nation. 60% of Australians now hold post-secondary educational qualifications. Uh, we've seen a 20% increase in real disposable income. So that's uh, income levels after inflation, after tax, and it's been spread fairly evenly across all the income bands. So as we've become a wealthier nation, people have become more self-reliant. They have less need for government and less interest in the processes of government and politics itself. We, of course, still have a significant underclass in Australia, 10% of citizens who've missed out on the benefits of globalisation, but they're not politically powerful. Uh, by and large, they're ignored in the process of election campaigning. Uh, and the evidence suggests that um, the target group, swinging middle-class voters, care less about politics because they're more self-reliant in their own economic and social habits. 
this is a trend that applies not just to politics. All of the big traditional institutions in our society have experienced a loss of faith and trust. Whether we're talking about the Catholic Church and allegations of pedophilia, whether we're talking about big media houses that are losing income and sales, whether we're talking about large corporations, uh, generally across society, big traditional institutions are under pressure. This is a product of self-reliance, how in the economy power has moved from producers to consumers, how people are better skilled and more capable of uh, making decisions and making their own way in an open market economy. Uh, the second big change that we've seen in politics is the process of globalisation and the declining power of the nation state. Uh, power has, has moved from producers to consumer interests. Uh, the best governments can do now in influencing economic outcomes is to try and create a better business environment. The traditional levers of having a direct impact on the economy have weakened. And as a result, politics itself has become more artificial. Uh, you're seeing more gimmicks, more attempts to engage in the public debate through sloganeering and stunts. Uh, Kevin Rudd had his grocery watch and fuel watch promises, which amounted not to a, uh, a can of beans in terms of their public value. And Tony Abbott himself came to office on the, on the basis of a gimmicky scare campaign, the idea that the carbon tax was destroying the Australian economy. The carbon tax was supposed to wipe out whole industries and regions. It did no such thing. All the evidence shows that the minimal impact of the carbon tax on the economy still resulted in very high levels of growth and wealth creation. So politics has produced a situation where the nation state doesn't have the direct powers of economic management and politicians wanting to impress people and hold out hope that they can deliver something in the future are engaging in stunts and, 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 and gimmicks, an artificial style of politics that increasingly the public sees through that and uh, takes a dim view of uh, the process itself. Uh, in social policy, service provision remains important by government, but increasingly it's being residualised as the middle class buys into private uh, education, health and recreational services. Many government services, as a result, are residualised to uh, become important for, for the underclass in Australia, while the middle class buy into private services in education, health and recreation. Again, a weakening of the direct powers and relevance of the nation state and the politics therein. Uh, the third structural change I'd identify is a narrowing of the party base as the middle class has become more carefree, more apathetic about politics. They've been less inclined to actually join political parties. If you take the combined Labor and Liberal Party membership in this country, it's just 0.4% of the Australian population. So any hope we ever had or past practice of mass political participation in this country has uh, been diminished. 0.4% of the population is just a very, very tiny fraction of direct party membership and activism. Now, of course, if the party base is small, it's a lot easier for factional machine men to take control of the party. Uh, if there aren't many members, it's not too hard for a factional warlord like Eddie Obeid or his equivalent in the Liberal Party to actually seize control of the party's decision-making. Uh, this is the rise of machine politics in Australia and the heavy factionalisation of both of the major parties, Labor and Liberal. And what we're seeing quite stunningly here in New South Wales is the emergence of a joint model. I call it a cartel model, where increasingly there are factional power brokers in the parties who become MPs and then they become lobbyists. That's the career path. The factional power broker becomes a member of parliament, becomes a lobbyist and then monetarises their access to political decision making. The ICAC inquiries about um, Australian water holdings and of course the Abid business empire have revealed this model on both sides of politics and the public looks at it with horror as they rightly should. It's narrowed the base of modern politics to the point now where if you're a successful person from a non-political background with a good career, good education, good income, good family, you wouldn't enter politics because you know it's not a meritocracy. You won't be treated on your merits, you'll be treated on your uh, inclination to say yes and agree with the factional power brokers to uh, become a yes person to them and slowly work your way through the system based on subservience to the factional warlords. So the base 
then continues to narrow. The good people don't come into politics and it's left to harden apparatchiks, the yes-men, lower in the factional system to systematically work their way up and become the new factional law warlords of the future. Uh, these hardened apparatchiks, of course, uh, also have a greater capacity to stand up to the modern media scrutiny in politics, which can be quite harsh. Uh, the most recent example was the absurdity of the Murdoch press reaching back into Julia Gillard's private relationships 20 years ago, uh, her work career before she'd even entered into Parliament to run a massive smear campaign against the sitting Prime Minister in the AWU, Slater and Gordon matter. So what you've got in Labor and Liberal are these hardened um, uh, factional warlords and apparatchiks, a narrowing of the base of people who go into politics itself. It's come down now to staffers and on the Labor side, union officials, and on the Liberal side, sort of business consultants and hangers-on. They're the type of people, almost exclusively, who go into parliamentary seats. Uh, the fourth structural change has been changes in the media um, system of, uh, of information, the rise of the 24-hour media cycle, uh, and also the phenomenon of narrow casting. The 24-hour media cycle has made politics uh, uh, more shallow, more artificial. It's encouraged uh, stunts. Lindsay Tanner in his book Sideshow talks quite revealingly of how the main uh, process of decision making in the Rudd government was to arrive at something called announceables, something that could be announced to the media to attract attention, didn't have much substance to it, wouldn't actually uh, change society for the better, but if it could be announced in the media and get the Prime Minister a slot in the 24-hour media cycle, it was something that the government wanted to engage in. Uh, the public, I think, increasingly sees through the shallowness of that process. Uh, we've had so many announceables that if they don't actually produce something substantial, people become very cynical and disillusioned with the process itself. Uh, the narrow casting in media houses really has been a product of commercial pressure. Traditional forms of media are under um, uh, competitive pressure from the internet, social media, and I think in many cases the commercial response has been to uh, narrow their message at a certain niche part of the ideological spectrum. Here in Sydney, of course, we know that Radio 2GB just uh, broadcasts at an audience of uh, ageing right-wing fanatics, and uh, <laughs> if it doesn't give you a headache, then it will certainly uh, knock you right out if you listen to it for too long. Uh, so that's a, a narrow casting of its media message, and I think in print form, the Australian newspapers become much uh, the equivalent, that it is now just pitching unsuccessfully, we found out this week, with huge commercial losses, thank goodness for that, but unsuccessfully they're pitching at a narrow right-wing audience. And this has encouraged tribalisation in politics, where uh, certain media outlets just barrack for the right-wing or the left-wing tribe, and uh, that gives the, the political system an artificial sense of security and support that's not shared by the broader middle-class electorate. So this is um, uh, a very... Um, uh, concerning situation that these structural trends have moved towards distrust um, about uh, modern politics and to some extent we've arrived at a standoff in the public arena that self-reliant, prosperous, middle-class citizens now look at politics as some weird activity, a form of infotainment relayed through the media and the standoff runs along the lines of, well, if these uh, political people don't do, do too much damage and all they do is squabble among themselves about trivia, well, I can sort of tolerate that as long as the economy continues to grow and national prosperity continues to increase. It's not healthy for democracy, but it's an uh, informal standoff at which we've arrived in, in modern Australia. Uh, in dealing with the problem of distrust, the traditional suggestion of political scientists has always been that the answer to any democratic problem is more democracy that if we haven't got uh, trust and confidence in Australian democracy, well, let's have more of it. Let's have um, open public participation processes, uh, uh, civic juries, democratic experiments to get people more involved. Um, I, I used to see some appeal in that approach, but as time has passed, I've reached the conclusion that essentially the middle class in Australia now has such a, an adverse view of modern politics, the chances of opening up broader participation are very small. Uh, people now look at politics the way Oscar Wilde did about socialism, that it just takes too many nights. 
who wants to belong to a political party and, and use up all that time dealing with factional warlords and all the problems I've described when there are many more rewarding activities to pursue in life. Uh, the um, political class itself in Australia, I think, uh, takes too little concern about the erosion of trust and confidence. Um, in, within the, the two-party system, of course, you only need to be marginally better than the other side to get into government. And the rationalisation is that, uh, say, a Liberal politician will say, well, yeah, the system's not great and it's a terrible thing to work in at the moment, but we're 5% better than the other side and we can make a 5% difference. So it's rationalised away in that shape and form. I think what needs to happen is, there needs, uh, is to, to find a cross-party consensus about the need to improve the quality of work in modern politics, to rebuild trust and confidence so it once again becomes an honoured vocation, an honoured profession. We need serving MPs to redefine their own self-interest. It's not so much the battle to be 5% better of the other side and scrape into government, it's the battle to overhaul modern politics and rebuild some public trust and confidence. Um, I found in uh, talking about the contents of my book and some of the preliminary ideas about, um, about uh, downscaling politics, uh, taking a different approach, that um, many people who are hooked into watching politics, you know, political fanatics, are not all that willing to concede there are major problems. For instance, journalists don't want to concede that they're reporting on a system riddled with distrust and dislike publicly. Um, people who are part of the tribes find other rationalisations uh, to, 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 to avoid major change. So uh, I don't know how these changes are going to uh, come about, but they do come down to the need for the political class to redefine its own interests. Uh, my dangerous idea is that instead of opening up uh, more democracy and more forums that, that, that nobody will attend, uh, we should try and downsize politics to the point where uh, we recognise the reality of the limited powers of the state and the limited effectiveness of public policy, that we recognise politics as a niche activity in a modern self-reliant society. Uh, I think we can rebuild trust if politics better matched its activities with the public mood and the democratic desire for politics to be less visible, less pretentious, less intrusive and less artificial. I think that's probably the bottom line. If politics was less fake, if it was more genuine in achieving a limited number of things in a realistic fashion, it would be more likely to recapture the trust and confidence of the Australian people. So I outline at the uh, end of my book, and these are discussion points rather than a self-apparent manifesto for change, uh, 10 ideas for downsizing politics, for making the system more consistent with the public mood and, and, and democratic desire. I'll mention four here today. The first of those is independent policy making. Uh, I think the Australian electorate uh, wants policy making to be more bipartisan, uh, with less bickering, less trivia, uh, less conflict. And we have a very successful model in place with the making of monetary policy in Australia. The Reserve Bank, for many, many years now, has been making independent uh, uh, monetary policy removed from the decisions of parliamentarians. It's been a major part of the success of the economy. And we could apply the same process, have independent policy making forums for climate change and budget policy, which of course have been subject to low-level scare campaigns in Australia in recent years. Uh, the second change I'd mention is the need for voluntary voting. Uh, prior to the last federal election, the Australian Electoral Commission produced the very disturbing statistic that 400,000 young Australians weren't on the roll. These are people aged between 18 and 24 who haven't gone on the electoral roll. So we've got a de facto system of voluntary voting now, where young people have worked out, it's a bit like game theory, they've worked out, if you don't go on the roll in the first place, you never have to vote, and you, know, you won't be fined for not turning up. So you've got a huge amount of apathy among young Australians who've now stepped outside the system, 400,000, that's the equivalent of four federal electorates. People have decided if they don't go on the roll in the first place, they'll never be fined for not participating on election day. So we've got that de facto system. I think the quality of our political debate would be much improved if only those genuinely interested in politics were part of the voting population. Um, people often ask me, why is politics now communicated through three-word slogans, like axe the tax and stop the boats? Well, the short answer is that we have so much sloganeering and stunts in modern politics because 
when the, the, the both parties conduct their focus group research, they find out that people are so apathetic and, and so sick of political noise and, and news, they basically say, look, I can't tolerate much of this information. Give me, you know, just a sentence of what either side stands for and I'll make my decision that way. So they go back to the political leaders and say, look, the public can't consume serious policy manifestos and documents. They just want a brief summary of what you're on about. And that's where the three-word slogan comes back, comes from in feeding back to the electorate the things that they've told the pollster in the focus groups. Uh, I think uh, the voluntary voting would make uh, Australian major parties earn the support, more likely to earn the support of the electorate, work harder with genuine policies uh, to encourage their base to get out and vote and support them. For instance, if we had voluntary voting in Australia at the next election, it would force Labor to have a genuine climate change policy. Otherwise, people on the progressive side would think, well, I'm not bothering with any of that. There's no genuine policy there for doing something about global warming, so I, I, won't, uh, I won't turn up at the polling booth. And on the Liberal side, you mightn't agree with the uh, policy itself, but to mobilise the um, coalition's uh, small business base, they'd need a genuine industrial relations policy, uh, not some uh, inquiry fobbed off into the future of the Productivity Commission, but a genuine IR policy. So if the voting population were those with a, uh, a genuine interest and conviction about politics, it would encourage the parties to be more genuine in the policy-making process and the campaigning debate. Uh, the third uh, change I'd suggest is uh, to deal seriously with the problem of money politics. Uh, to take the uh, uh, lobbyists out of the system, to limit campaign expenditure and to ensure that uh, uh, the entitlement system is cleaned up as well. Uh, the fourth proposal I'd make is within the management of the parties themselves. I mentioned that uh, we're not likely to have a system of mass political party membership in Australia ever again. But I think the parties can do some things to try and overcome the problem of narrow factional control and manipulation. Um, in having 0.4% of the Australian population as major party members, that base is way too narrow. If the base is narrow, the factional warlords will always be able to capture control and manipulate outcomes. So it would be highly desirable for the parties to find ways of broadening the decision-making process, to go outside the narrow membership base and encourage the general public to vote in the selection of party candidates. Uh, this is the equivalent of the US primary system of pre-selection. Uh, in my own patch uh, in southwest Sydney, recently the Labor Party faced a, a situation in selecting a candidate for the state seat of Campbelltown, where in the branches, the Labor Party branches in Campbelltown, this is Michael Knight's old seat, the, the, the ex-Olympics minister, been a very, very safe Labor seat over the years until the O'Farrell landslide uh, gave it to the Liberal Party at the last state election. So a traditional Labor seat, and in the branches they only had 28 people. 28 people are going to vote for the Labor candidate at next year's election. So if you're an Eddie O'Beat or a Joe Tripodi, it's not very hard to get among the 28 who are going to select the Labor candidate in the seat of Campbelltown, take them out for lunch, make a few promises, you know, you know the story, and manipulate the 28 to the point where you'll get the person, the yes person for a Tripodi or an Obeid, to then go into the state parliament if Labor wins the seat. So faced with uh, such a narrow branch membership base of 28, uh, Labor, to its credit, decided to run a community pre-selection experiment, uh, a 50-50 model where 50% of the voting panel would be from the 28, but the other 50% would be anyone in the state seat of Campbelltown could um, uh, vote in the Labor pre-selection. And 1,061 people did. Now, that's only 2% of the Campbelltown state electorate. But 1,061 people voting in a Labor pre-selection is the biggest voluntary Labor Party event in southwestern Sydney in my lifetime. I've lived there for 50 years. And the idea that 1,000 people went out and volunteered to participate in a Labor Party process, I think, was an amazing indication of how you can broaden out much more substantially than just having a telephone booth process with 28 branch members. So the bigger the ballot, the harder it is for the factional warlords to control it. And that type of experiment needs to be expanded across the board. So in conclusion, I think whether you're from the left, right or centre of politics, repairing democracy itself is the preeminent challenge. Uh, to return it to being an honoured profession, to make it better match public expectations for what politics should be, to improve the quality of the work 
for serving MPs and to make the, help the Australian people again have some trust and confidence in this thing we call parliamentary democracy. So thanks for your time and consideration of those ideas and I look forward to the question and answer session. Many thanks. Thanks, Mark. Um, I said before you came out that there's, uh, it's dangerous in itself to speak truth to power. And there are a lot of vested interests, I think, in maintaining the system as it is at the moment. Although, as you point out, many politicians must be dissatisfied with the situation in which they find themselves. But I, I think uh, your reading of the mood in the electorate is precisely right. I, I just don't think the public trust the political system, but I think another word you used, which is even more profound in its implications. At the beginning, you talked about a crisis in legitimacy, which is a different thing. If you lose trust in uh, an organisation or an individual, you'll often make do by raising the costs of how you manage that relationship. So people who trust each other might shake hands and reach an agreement that's very efficient. If you don't trust, then there'll be contracts and things. But if you lose legitimacy, no one deals with you. There isn't a price anyone will pay. And that's why you see dictators that have had all sorts of arms, money, organs of state, they disappear. They're forced out because they lose legitimacy. And when I saw that poll that you referred to amongst younger people, it seemed that legitimacy was actually at stake, which I thought was extraordinary. Do you, do you agree that distinction? And yeah, I think the problem of apathy um, gets to a point where it challenges the legitimacy of the institution itself. Now, you know, normally in political science you think, oh, this will lead to some kind of um, movement for change, uprising. But I think in modern Australia's circumstance with uh, the rise of a big middle-class self-reliant group, there is this uh, standoff. You know, it's sort of a, an unacceptable standoff at, at one level that uh, the middle class have taken the view that politics is some silly side activity. Unimportant. Really. Unimportant. Mm. The economy grows anyway, regardless of all the squabbles in Canberra. And as long as that continues, people can sort of safely ignore it. So you've got a, a standoff that has undermined uh, not only trust but legitimacy, a system which is seen as unimportant, insignificant and sort of just some irritation on the side, uh, lacks the legitimacy upon which democracy originally was supposed to be based. Mm. Well, let's, let's try it open uh, so there's lots of time for people to make their own comments or questions. There are microphones on either side here of the auditorium near the... the uh, uh, the entrances. You don't have to agree with what Mark said. You can challenge it, obviously, passionately and respectfully. Um, yes, and we'll I, on... I, I welcome and invite abuse. That's always healthy. Uh, no, we don't, we don't do abuse at Fody, uh, but so you may be disappointed. Uh, uh, <laughs> can we start with you, sir? Um, my name's Keith. I heard in the car one day uh, the uh, Henry Parks lecture given by Ted Mack, uh, and he covered the corruption that he felt existed in the system. And he said in his mind, the solution was to implement some kind of proportional voting. He didn't nominate which perhaps like the hair clock system. And it was a fault not to have included that when the constitution was originally set and that that would be necessary to change things. He didn't address the problem that to get that there, the political junta would have to vote to shoot themselves in the head. Um, so that's my first question. The other is as a Jewish, Australian, I'd like to ask you, as a small L liberal whom I respect, do you think it would promote a democracy to have a Palestinian denied the right to voice a dangerous idea, or was it damaging to it? Thank you. Maybe start with part one. <laughs> Here, Clark. Yeah, hopefully we'll forget about part two, isn't that the idea? <laughs> um, on part one, well, we used to have uh, in the Australian Senate first past the post and the Chifley government after World War II introduced the PR system. So in the Australian Senate, most um, state upper houses, we have proportional representation and that's uh, produced power sharing, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, nationally, of course, uh, you've got the phenomenon of the Palmer United Party. Uh, they're a product of PR uh, in the Senate. Um, they're an interesting group because um, they basically exist on the basis that of two things. Palmer had the money to fund a major start-up election campaign for a political party, breaking away from 
the Conservatives, where, where he'd been in, in Queensland. And I think it's very disturbing that in the Western Australian Senate by-election, he effectively bought a seat through the weight of his telef uh, uh, television advertising. He, he spent more than Labor and Liberal combined. That's why I think you need caps on campaign spending, not just so the parties don't rely heavily on lobbyists and, and corporate donations, but rich people themselves can't buy parliamentary seats, which is a very unhealthy practice. And the second thing that uh, sustains the Palmer Party through proportional representation is the mood that there's some form of protest group. Uh, my mother, for instance, who died in the wool Labor person over the years said to me, Mark, um, I'm going to vote for Palmer next time. And I said, what are you talking about, Mum? He's an idiot. She said, I know he's an idiot, but he's shaking up the system. <laughs> and I think that, if you had a one-sentence one summary of the, the Palmer ethos and success story, it's that. He's an idiot who's shaping up, shaking up the system. <laughs> and the problem is such that, that, that people, um, uh, apathetic, middle-class people, are willing to support that. The, the, the idea of someone who's doing something, anything different, to break the, um, the, the two-party cartel. Um, so, you know, proportional representation in itself, I don't think goes to the core of solving the problem of, of distrust. It becomes more a, a forum where minor parties can get a, a foothold in parliamentary seats as a product of distrust and uh, lack of democratic legitimacy. On your second point about the controversy that preceded the festival itself, uh, I thought the idea to be advanced was uh, abhorrent. Um, my feeling was, I suppose, that it was poorly expressed in the publicity, and perhaps if it was uh, better expressed, you wouldn't have had so much confected right-wing outrage about it. That's my own assessment. But whether or not it should have gone ahead, I would have to, you know, look at, look at uh, more of the detail of, of what the speaker was going to talk about. But it did seem like it was a bit of a, an element of miscommunication, an element of right-wing media uh, beat-up, and um, I'm sure if it was considered again, it'd be done in a very different way. To be fair, it wasn't just right-wing. It's actually, we got clobbered by both sides. Did you? Okay. Yep. Well, universal media <laughs> outrage. Yes. Yes, thank you for your comments. When I saw the title of the talk, Downsize Politics, I had thought that perhaps you'd be addressing a pet idea of mine that we don't really need three levels of government, local, state and federal. Mm. And it's something I've thought about for a long time and I just wondered if you had comment on that. You'd yeah, like well, one of the uh, ideas that uh, I advance in the conclusion of the book is a downscaling of state uh, parliamentary um, operations. Uh, under the Australian Constitution, you'll never abolish the states because they've got to vote themselves out of existence. You need every majority of people in every state to vote for the abolition of that state, which clearly won't happen. But, but I'm attracted to Bob Carr's idea, Bob Carr very experienced in the way in which our state parliaments operate, that uh, you don't need 20 ministers, you only need 10 at state level, and you don't need full-time backbenchers in state parliament. They could be part-time like we have in the local government system. The reason being that state parliaments now have very little um, business to transact to sustain a full parliamentary system. Um, Kennett in Victoria, Griner in this state, uh, privatised and contracted out and corporatised so many state utilities that now the system uh, doesn't really sustain a full parliamentary agenda for the year. So I don't think, in, in lieu of the fact you won't abolish the states, you can certainly downsize this, the scale of uh, state politics by moving to a much smaller cabinet. I mean, in New South Wales, we have a Minister for Veterans Affairs for which the state has no constitutional power. I mean, these are just sinecures, a product of the factional system where a follower needs a little job. I oh, will make him the Minister for Veterans Affairs, keep him happy. He gets, he gets staffers and, and, and they're factional operatives and the system sustains itself that way. So you could halve the size of the ministries and move the backbenches to a part-time system and, uh, and, and we wouldn't notice them as much. And, and who do we see about that? Bob Carr. Bob Carr's the champion of that idea, so go Bob. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, g'day Mark. My name's uh, Daniel and I'm, a, I'm 29 years old and I've got a pretty bad digital footprint that I've left over the last 10 years and sort of goes for sort of... Uh, Tell us more. <laughs> Tell <laughs> well, me what see, that so means. What's your digital footprint? Well, no, I haven't, I haven't, I'm not on Snapchat. I'm a bit too old for that. But basically, if, if the people in their 20s now, they run for politics in 20 years' time 
How do you think that digital footprint that is clearly there, like of all their Snapchats unearthed, all their Facebook history, oh, that see. could sort of incriminate them? I see, yeah. Indiscreet, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, how would moments. that affect the sort of, uh, I guess, politics in general? Would it go from a personality contest inevitably yeah. to an issue, sort of based, policy-based no, all, all those people yeah. are buggered, totally buggered. Yeah. <laughs> like, because... <laughs> Because if, if Julia Gillard, uh, as Prime Minister of the country, was in trouble for not opening a file in an obscure law firm in Melbourne as a middle-ranking solicitor 20 years earlier, imagine the trouble that, that you and your colleagues will be in for oh, what you run through the social media yeah. system and the way your Andrew Bolts and Randa Devines and all these flips will uh, use it <laughs> in the public arena. So. Um, no, they're all they're, they're they're all stuffed. They're better off finding a different career path. So, would you just have boring people in Parliament? Just the odd few that are left. That oh, you'll have, have the it. robots. You'll have the hard and robotic apparatchiks, yeah. who at age uh, 21 left uh, university and went to work for a union or a, as in a business consultancy or in a political office, and had the sense at that early age to know that all this stuff was poison, and part of their discipline um, is to avoid it. So, yeah, so they'll, they'll be the only ones yeah. left. The political robots will inherit the world. <laughs> that's, that's Let's go over Hello. Um, sorry, it's loud. Um, it's supposed hi. to be. My name's Madeline. Um, I suppose I'm asking for a comment more than a question. Um, but what would you say to um, perhaps the greatest gift that Tony Abbott has given us, um, or the, the current government rather, uh, is a more politically engaged youth? Um, just in response to the 18, the group, the age group that weren't um, registered to vote, uh, are, are they perhaps changing? Is that something that's... I mean, there are stirrings on university campuses again for the first time in a long time. Yeah. There are um, a generation of people who are looking at what they're going to inherit saying, oh, this is a complete mess. I mean, are we going to see a more engaged young group thinking that they're going to want to respond there? Uh, well, there's some extra engagement, but it, it still tends to be of a rather niche kind, doesn't it, in that the, the protests we're seeing a small-scale group of 20 or 30 people rocking a minister's car or banging on the door, uh, and, and they are hardened political activists, uh, trots and the like on the university campuses, whereas you go back, the Fraser government's changes to reintroduce fees, the, the Dawkins changes to go to Hex, they, they had tens of thousands of students marching on the streets which was a broader form of protest than what we're seeing now. And these current changes are obviously very concerning for students, but they have, uh, they have not invoked uh, that mass scale of protest that we saw in the 80s and, and, uh, and 90s. Do you think you could ever see yourself out there? If, I mean, do you, do you imagine there might be large numbers of people protesting, not just...? Oh, I mean, as a student, as a university student, I, I do see those. And, and I guess as well from um, the difference between the last government and this current government, I've, I've noticed a huge change at university. I mean, I guess I am in a niche market um, studying, but I've certainly noticed the difference. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's encouraging, and you're much yeah, closer to yeah, it I than me. I'm, I'm encouraged by that, but I'd still like to see tens of thousands of people marching on the streets, uh, as well, they did yeah, uh, uh, I, I reckon we are... against earlier changes to, yeah. to show that the, the, the commitment is still there. I is guess it, the comment I was asking is, how do you keep them engaged in, like, a beneficial and actually practically useful way? Uh, well, I know. I think <laughs> it's, 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 it's very... You need a full package of changes, the type of which I, I, I described in the speech and I've written about yeah. in the book. It's a, not just one thing, you need a full package of changes to, to um, reorder the nature of politics. And I think for young people in particular, let's take the, the battle-hardened warriors out of it, for a young person who's bright, well-intentioned, well-motivated about public life, you need to restore a system of meritocracy. The idea for today's young generation that you have to be a yes person to, to, to some union official in Sussex Street or some corporate flack in the Liberal Party before you get a chance uh, to advance in the party is, uh, runs contrary to everything that, that, that well-educated, well highly skilled young people believe in. I think that's a major part of the, the political problem. The factional control is so suffocating that it drives good people, young and old, into other activities and away from public life. So those party reforms that I mentioned, a system where if you want to run for parliament, it's not going to be 28 
people manipulated by factional warlords is going to be the whole electorate voting for you on your merits to establish a meritocracy, I think it's the most important thing you can do. Okay. Yep. Hi, Mark. Um, I just, I'll start off with a compliment. Uh, I think you, and I hope you take it as a compliment, you've always been, I think, a very uh, ideologically open guy, uh, particularly when it comes to considering the role of the market uh, in a modern social democracy. So given that your, the name of your talk is Downsize Politics, to what extent do you think we need to consider shrinking the scope and size of the state? Well, it's an interesting point, and I often have um, debates uh, with uh, people left to centre about this, that there is a tendency among lefties to think that state activity is uh, an end in itself, that all government activity is desirable. But as a product um, of the Hawke-Keating economic reforms, we've got this surge uh, in self-reliance in Australia, people who don't regard themselves as needy in terms of, of government activity. They can do more things for themselves. And Karl Marx himself spoke of the withering of the state, that in an advanced form of economic and social existence, people would be so... In his case, they're going to be liberated from capitalist hegemony. Well, fair enough. But it turns out they've been liberated from, uh, um, um, from uh, protection of subsidised economics in this country. And the Australian economy's grown to the point where people don't see themselves as calling heavily upon uh, the nanny state. And um, uh, that in itself, I think, is, is a wonderful uh, outcome. That um, government activity doesn't have to be an end in itself. It's more government activity to make people more self-reliant, less needy of, uh, of government assistance. And of course, most crucially in this country at the moment, to concentrate government activity on solving the, the, the problem of underclass, the 10% of Australians who've missed out on the benefits we're talking about, the benefits of globalisation. So uh, there are arguments to wither the state. You know, I'm a Marxist in that sense. As strange as that, you know, as strange as that it is to say that these days, but that original uh, conceptualisation of the role of government, I think, was the right one. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Mark, for your comments today. Uh, um, I've enjoyed them. I'm a, I'm a dual citizen, a Canadian-Australian citizen. And uh, while I enjoyed your comments, um, two of your party proposals um, concern me because um, I believe they could lead to the further Americanization of the Australian political system. And, and the Canadian part of me has a very healthy skepticism um, about the American political system. And I'd just like you to respond on two points. Um, you're advocating for uh, voluntary voting. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think has shown in a number of jurisdictions around the world leads to more extreme policies as, as those parties try to capture those, that narrow band of swing voters. Um, we've seen that in the US repeatedly, I guess, over the last couple of decades. And secondly, um, the US-style primaries. I guess that, that really concerns me because effectively what you're doing is you're saying we're walking away from party membership as a worthwhile concept, and, and I guess I'd really like to understand why the Labour Party simply won't allow 100% um, of the vote to come from the at-large membership to elect the members, because then it would give a reason for people to join political parties like the ALP. Well, there have been moves in that, that area with the election of uh, the party leaders, state and federal. But basically the problem is one of the membership being so hollowed out that you can't sustain a viable political decision-making process with 28 members deciding who's going to be your state candidate in a formally safe Labor seat. But what if all members... That's the reason. What, rather than doing it, I think he's asking, rather than doing it on an electorate basis, say, doing all of a, a state branch voting on, on these matters? Well, the local candidate needs to be selected within that seat. And the process in Campbelltown was voluntary voting. People yeah. could volunteer out of the community to vote for the candidate of their choice, and more than 1,000 did. Uh, but I think, I think moving to that Australian-type primary system um, won't end up like the American system because of the other suggestion I made, that, and Labor has um, used this in, 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 the, in, the, in the community pre-selection experiments, of expenditure caps. You can't have, have open-ended spending where some yeah. rich person spends a fortune in mobilising the vote in a place like Campbelltown. Uh, expenditure caps, sensible expenditure cap, which means it's a genuine process. And what happened in Campbelltown was that the successful candidate got out to the railway stations and met people. 
went around the pubs and clubs and met people, door knocked, mm. door knocked relentlessly, week after week. I mean, this is the type of campaigning inside the Labor Party, real politics of persuading people to support you that we haven't seen for years. What, the system had deteriorated and, 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 to the and, point and we where, where oh, I'll ring a couple of factional bosses mm. and they'll get the support for me and therefore I'm in and then I owe them something. That's how it worked We, we can't debate this now, so, okay. but we do need uh, on the voting system, compulsory versus voluntary. Well, mm. I, I, I think the Australian system is different. The, 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 I assume you're referring to the American moral majority type um, uh, policy making. I, I, we've got an element of that in Australia, but I don't think it will ever... Uh, come close to the mainstream the way it has in the United States. I think the Australian uh, political culture is very different to the United States and a, a voluntary voting system here would be more successful and uh, the primary systems with expenditure caps would be highly successful in changing the nature of uh, the political parties away from narrow factionalism to a meritocracy. Okay, let's go over here. Uh, it's in a similar vein as the last question about um, voluntary voting. Um, some critics of voluntary voting suggest that the least privileged and, and the most disadvantaged of us uh, lose their political efficacy under voluntary voting. I'm just wondering how you respond to those sort of criticisms. Well, it's voluntary. It's voluntary for them to make that choice. But if you think for a moment that people in public housing estates in southwest Sydney rocking out to vote every three or four years think they've been empowered, then you need to go talk to them <laughs> as to how they see that process. They see it as a nuisance that whoever they vote for, they'll just get a politician, no great affinity to either side of politics on ideological grounds or out of some self-interest that someone's actually going to improve their situation and end the, the sinkhole problems of, of broad acre public housing estates. I mean, uh, the people we're talking about uh, are more apathetic about political failure than any other group. And it's with good reason. It's with good reason. So um, to win their support, uh, to mobilise them and come out and vote under a voluntary um, uh, electoral system, uh, parties that have to come out with a, a viable Claymore policy, a, a viable Macquarie Fields policy, a viable um, um, AIDS policy in, in South West Sydney, something meaningful for those communities to come out and support. And I think it's a very good thing. You know, I think, uh, you know, on, on my side of politics, the Labor side, one of the great shames is the lack of focus on the um, deep-seated problems of, of, of underclass and poverty. Wayne Swan has spoken about it from time to time, but that word poverty has dropped out of the Labor dictionary. And uh, it would be incumbent upon Labor candidates in those areas to have something meaningful to say to those communities to get them out and vote on the right basis instead of the, the compulsion we've got at the moment, which is underpinned by apathy and a, uh, a fear that they might get fined. Over here. Thank you, Mark. Uh, can we limit the influence and power of the church on the state? Oh, the church is doing a good job in destroying itself. <laughs> Next. <laughs> I, never, I never used to be a great fan of George Pell, but I think he's doing a wonderful job <laughs> in winding back the influence of his institution. And, um, and he got promoted for it. That says a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> I think they may have relieved him of pastoral duties. Uh, I'm, yes. sure he's, I'm sure he's sending out missives left, right and centre. Hi, Mark. My name is Megan. Um, my question really goes to legitimacy and increasing apathy towards democracy. Um, I guess if we look at our par parliamentarian representatives today, they really don't reflect the Australian community. And I'm not just talking along gender divides. I'm in a, a mixed-race relationship and there's not very many Chinese um, parliamentarians. Um, and I would, at once upon a time, consider myself very politically astute and very politically active, but um, looking at and facing frustration with the current government in particular because they, they aren't representative of what we need and, and who we are. And do you think that's possibly increasing this, I guess, apathy towards democracy and the delegitimising of our, our government? It is, but you also need to recognise that the communities we're talking about in many cases are finding better and more rewarding things to do. Uh, through my son's high school, I have a lot of conversations with parents of a Chinese and Indian background, and uh, oh, they just scoff at the idea of their children ever wanting to go into politics. They want them to be uh, IT experts, engineers, business leaders. And my parents, and that's a, that's the a very thing, good thing yeah. for Australia that, that that's happening. Um, so, not you know, um, there's a world outside of politics that we need to recognise, and for many sensible people, that's the world they're pursuing. Thank you. Okay. 
Yes. Um, my question relates to actually making downsize politics happen. Um, I somehow feel that the politicians in the system, they'd be loath to support um, such a move, given the system has served them well, and why should they change? Um, and I'm wondering if... Um, uh, I relate it to a story. Um, I had a friend who had some behavioural issues, um, so I sought a psychologist's advice, and she said, stop propping your friend up, stop supporting her in her poor issues, and let her hit rock bottom. Only then will she change. And so I'm wondering what rock bottom might look like if we sit back and do nothing. How will, how will we identify it when we see it? And is indeed, if that um, is the answer, how do we fast track rock bottom to actually occur? Well, um Uh, well, rock bottom's down at the ICAC hearings. <laughs> that is rock bottom. But they're still walking the streets. They're not in prison. I don't think that is rock bottom yet. Well, you, you, you mentioned that the system has served people well. Uh, the problem in the New South Wales system for the forthcoming election is imagine yourself being a candidate for the Labor Party or the Liberal Party. Now, you would be an idealistic person. You'd have some ideas for improving public policy and outcomes in New South Wales. You'd have to face the reality of setting up your table in the shopping centre or door knocking from house to house with people basically laughing in your face. The idea that, that, that you're some Labor or Liberal person who's got some idealistic uh, program or suggestion for the local community because you'll be associated with the problems we've seen at ICAC. Systemic Labor Party factional corruption, NDOB, Ian McDonnell, left and right, and this systemic Liberal Party rorting of the electoral system. Now, it gets to the point where the rock bottom is so bad, surely some MPs, hopefully political leaders, can redefine their own self-interest. That the quality of work and reputation is so bad, so rotten, they've got to make some big structural changes to improve it. It's not about left versus right, Labor versus Liberal, public policy debates. It's just about the quality of the work and the reputation of parliamentarians. And hopefully, in the run-up to the New South Wales election, we'll see some of that. Um, and if they don't redefine their own self-interest, then they're as foolish as they currently look. Could you ever see a situation in which citizens might boycott an election? Mm. Well, I think voluntary voting would give people that no, opportunity. No, I mean, even under compulsory, where mm. there might be mass civil disobedience. Well, there's 400,000 young Australians who haven't gone on the roll. That is a form of civil disobedience, a boycott. A boycott by young Australians who don't like party politics who don't like democracy, as we saw in the Lowy Institute. This will mm. filter further into the system as, as they get older and, and, and other young people with similar views come through. It's a, it's a massive boycott that we should recognise for what it is. It's people basically saying they don't want to participate, they found a legal way of not participating. And it, shall, it hollows out um, the voting population election by election. And I'll be fascinated to see the next federal election if the 400,000 has grown into 600,000. I remember in Tassie when they had the no dams, um, people wrote no dams on their electoral papers when they mm. submitted as a way and it was you know, strong registered. We have to move, I've got, only got time for one more person and then we're going to be wrapping up. So whoever's there nearest and work out between yourselves, we'll have one last question. Hi Mark, my name's Robert. Um, on, as far as three word slogans goes, I was particularly fond of ease the squeeze. I think we should bring that one back. But... Oh, well I'm not pure. And in, the, and in the book, I don't pretend to be. So, um, you know, I confess to my problems. Yeah, you, you, you'll put, you're even research from the party pollster. A lot of people follow it. And in some cases, I did. But it's, I'm not here I'm, saying not I'm a hat McGandy. Not, I'm not a judgment at, at all. No, no, of course. But, so let's um, move on beyond these. I'm, I'm just I'd like you to comment on, I guess, the demystification of government, I guess, um, along with the rise of the strong middle class. I guess there's a, a situation where people believe that running a country is easy, much like, you know, if, if you were to look at a, an Australian opening batsman or something like that, I don't know why he played that shot, as if he had, uh, it was an easy decision to make at the time, where we're talking about a 120-odd billion, I guess, uh, dollar economy, and that can't be an easy job. So um, I'd like you to comment on that, I guess. Well, it worked, your question's based on the assumption that MPs are running the country or running the economy. Now, certainly in the political class and in media circles, there's a perception put out there that um, 
the Treasurer is responsible, directly responsible for all economic outcomes. I think in the open, globalised economy where people have become more successful, better educated, self-reliant, by and large the, 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 the public is seeing through that, uh, that falsehood. And it's one of the reasons why you know, media companies are under such circulation and profitability pressure, that uh, um, smart people know that uh, a lot of this is just bulldust. And um, it's not true of the way in which the economy works and it's not true of, of the way in which uh, the media outlet should be communicating it. So I think the assumption of your question is, is, is wrong and, and a lot of people are, uh, are coming to a different conclusion. So as we wind up, the proposition is that our governments, our politicians do less than they once might have and that will be a trend that continues and therefore we should shrink them down to size in our public life, uh, that we should return some honour to those who do go into politics but in the state area it should be with a more limited scope and that perhaps we as citizens have got to investigate different models by which we express clearly this fascinating notion that the bottom has been reached so that those already in the system can stop deluding themselves that we as citizens are not concerned, which I think they sometimes think. Some pretty dangerous ideas in all of that, certainly for the established political class at the moment. And so for that, would you please join with me in thanking Mark Lopez. Thanks, Simon. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.